It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Scano Sego Ani Bojo Kwekwe Tansi. Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth and Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening in Toronto and Ottawa directly, and that is at 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You could also be listening anywhere across the country. On the Radio Player Canada app, if you download the app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM, and you can listen on your device of choice. And you might be listening in Calgary, which is where our caller is calling in from this morning. This morning, Treaty 7. Our guest is Sheldon Krasowski. He is the author of No Surrender, The Land Remains Indigenous. And that is a new book that has just come out earlier this year in February. It is a very interesting look and casts new light on the treaty process and how the treaties, uh, to, by and large, were interpreted and are interpreted by, uh, by scholars and also today's way of looking at it. But with you may have heard a lot about the interest in the treaties. The treaties are what a lot of Indigenous people say that's what we really should be focusing on in terms of, of nation-to-nation negotiations and, and the land and all of the other things that, that have to do with Indigenous people in this country. Sheldon, uh, welcome to the show this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. And, you know, I, I'm interested in terms of how you first became aware of the treaties because if I'm not mistaken, from your book, you were your first time you heard about this. You, you were alarmed that you had not heard anything about it. Yeah, that's very true. Um, it's it's a little bit ironic because um, I took when I went. I'm from Saskatoon. I grew up in Saskatoon. I'm a non-Indigenous person, but when I decided to take a university degree um, at the U of S, I I chose Indigenous studies as my major, mm-hmm. and so I took an undergraduate degree in Indigenous studies. And I remembered an intro to, Indi- in, to Indigenous studies. They had like sh- short sections on the treaties, but you know you cover so much information. Mm-hmm. And when I did my honors, I had a different focus. When I did my master's degree, also in, in Indigenous studies, out closer to uh, where you guys are in um, in Peterborough, Ontario, at Trent University. Mm-hmm. Again, I took a different topic. But when I, when I went back to Saskatoon, um, I was able to teach at First Nations University of Canada. Mm. And First Nations University of Canada and the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations treaties are kind of front and center. So I remember the first class I taught, treaties were very, were very central, but I didn't really know much about them. And I felt kind of uh, embarrassed about that. And so I kind of took my... Even though I was an instructor, I was really learning from the students, learning from the faculty, learning from the elders. And that was kind of the beginning, beginning of my journey to learn treaties because of the, the central focus uh, in the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. In Saskatoon, it would be Treaty 6, which was negotiated in 1876. Mm-hmm. So it was quite embarrassing to, uh, to have all these degrees, uh, start a PhD, and only then that was the beginning of my, um, my study of treaties. Mm-hmm. And so you started to delve into this this uh, subject. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. Um, so, like, I had quite a bit of experience uh, in academia, not much background in treaties. And so when I was looking for a PhD committee, the first person I went to was Dr. Winona Wheeler, who I knew, who I knew from my undergraduate work. Mm-hmm. And she said, she said, okay, Sheldon, I, we, we could certainly look look at that and. So she gave me some advice. She said, well, 
you're, you're new to treaties, the first thing that I would recommend is before you look at any of the written accounts, any of the published accounts, any of the primary accounts, um, make sure that you look at all of the Indigenous oral histories first. And that was, that was her advice, and that was, uh, she um, looked at my dissertation as well, and she did all kinds of other stuff, but as far as advice goes, that was the only piece of advice she gave me. Mm. And initially I thought, well, well, I didn't really think it was all that great. I was like, okay, well, I will certainly do that because she's agreeing to supervise me. Mm. But I didn't really think it would make that much of a difference. What does it matter if I look at the oral histories mm. or the written histories first? Mm. But I followed her advice. Uh, the first year of my research, I looked only at the Indigenous oral histories. I looked at anything that had been published. There's actually quite a bit out there. There's um, there's published sources, there's books, there's collections of oral histories. There's the Treaty and Aboriginal Research Project, which collected um, Indigenous oral teachings. I also happened to be working at the Treaty Commissioner's Office at the time, and I had access to the elders that would come into the office. So I was always asking them questions about treaties. And the main theme that kind of came out of all these, all this uh, oral history research was that uh, indigenous peoples never surrendered their land through treaties. Treaties are actually land-sharing treaties. And so that was, ended up being the, um, the argument or the idea that I sought to prove when I then went to look into, into the archives, into mm. the, um, the eyewitness accounts, the primary accounts of uh, the treaty negotiations. And of course, that is, uh, by and large, what many First Nation and Indigenous people have been saying for forever. Yeah, it's it's incredibly consistent. Um, there is, I probably started this this is maybe twelve or fourteen years ago now, mm-hmm. and there's quite a bit of controversy in terms of like um, what some anthropologists were saying about indigenous oral history in terms of veracity, and there was this idea that they didn't stack up to the written record because they could be changed. But uh, I found the opposite to be the case. I looked at so many different oral histories, talked to so many elders, and that uh, idea of um, sharing the land and not surrendering the land was incredibly consistent all throughout Western Canada. Cree, Nisapi, Blackfoot, uh, Dene, it didn't really matter that that consistency was there. Mm. So as you started to look into this to try and prove that uh, that statement, what what did you start to find? I mean, you said you, you found a consistency, but what, what things, what... What sort of uh, things stood out with you as you started to go through this? What started to make you think, aha, I am on to something here? It took a little while. Mm. Um, the the treaty, treaty history in Canada is incredibly complex. Mm. We, have, um, we, we do have treaties negotiated prior to Canada's confederation, mm-hmm. especially uh, out east where you guys are, the Robinson-Huron-Robinson-Superior Treaties, Williams Treaties and the Upper Canada Treaties, Mm -hmm. these are generally smaller. What I focus on are the post-Confederation treaties. So these are treaties 1 to 7 negotiated between 1869 and 1877. Right. And even just focusing on that small area, it's incredibly complex. You're dealing with different nations, uh, different treaty commissioners, um, different policies that Canada uh, had regarding treaty, different characters, different interpreters, different treaty commissioners, as I mentioned. So... um, First, I had to kind of kind of make sense of the whole treaty process, and as I as I went through all the archival documents and the eyewitness accounts, I always had this from Dr. Wheeler's advice to me of um, the land was not surrendered. I always had this this idea in the back of my head. So as I'm reading and as I'm looking through the documentation, I'm I'm I have my thesis. I have my my main argument. 
and it actually took it took a long time to kind of kind of weed through it. And there was no there there were a couple of what I would call maybe smoking guns. Like I did see evidence that showed that yes, Indigenous peoples did not did not share the land, but it wasn't obvious. Um, it was really, really uh, in the details, mm. and I guess this makes sense because uh, the treaties were negotiated in the 1870s. Historians have been tackling them uh, consistently since the 30s, more so in the 70s and 80s, and into today. But um, it was really the eyewitness accounts, and when I when I looked at them closely from treaty to treaty, I realized that hey none of these eyewitness accounts, whether they're journalists or Northwest Mounted Police or missionaries, whomever they are, even the treaty commissioners themselves, nobody's mentioning the surrender clause. Mm. It's it's central in in the text of treaty, <laughs> in the treaty document, but mm. as far as the negotiations go, there's no evidence of this. Mm. And I wasn't the first person to come up with this. Um, some uh, historians had noted the absence of a discussion of the surrender clause, Jill St. Germain, and um, others, but they never really followed through on it. Mm-hmm. Jill St. Germain basically said, well, because the surrender clause is front and center, it's less important that it wasn't mentioned during the negotiations, and she's focused mm-hmm. specifically on Treaty 6. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I did is rather than look at a specific treaty, I looked at treaties 1 to 7, and I applied a methodology that I learned from oral history called uh, the Treaty Bundle, Mm-hmm. And so I bundled all of the treaties together, and I looked at the evidence in the negotiations for all of them, and I realized it wasn't just Treaty 6. It was actually all of the numbered treaties from 1 to 7. In each of these negotiations, uh, no one mentioned the surrender clause. So previous historians had noted its absence at Treaty 6 and Treaty 7, but by applying the treaty bundle, I was able to show that um, not only was it not mentioned, but when I delved deep into the Department of Indian Affairs records, I could see that the treaty negotiators in Canada actually had a strategic plan to um, limit discussion of the surrender clause, push it uh, past the negotiations until the reading of the treaty. And I can talk about the reading of the treaty a little bit later. It starts Mm -hmm. to get very complex. Sure. Um, So... Of course, the the uh, going back to to what you were talking about pre confederation, and I'm just wondering if you can give us a little bit of a timeline. Are you there? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't know it went really silent there for a second. I thought we lost you. <laughs> <Just listening. laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about how the Hudson Bay Company was involved with Canada in the negotiation process of 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 treaties? Because it was, from what I understand, the Hudson Bay Company had dealings with Indigenous people and communities and nations because of the trading they were doing. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm glad you mentioned that because um, prior to my research and the research of historians in the last few years, the common uh, thesis or argument regarding treaties is that there were common misunderstandings and that Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples did not understand each other's perspective and therefore a meeting of the minds did not take place. And so that was kind of the common um, the common argument. And I argued against that because of the Hudson's Bay Company, because there had been hundreds of years of trade between the Bay and uh, trading captains, Indigenous nations, that there was common understandings. People had all these dealings with each other. Uh, Jim Miller wrote a book, he's a historian out of the U of S, uh, Compact uh, Contract Covenant. And he talks about how um, when the traders first came to the North Saskatchewan, for example. They came with a boatload of goods. 
and it was this boatload of goods that enabled them to um, to set up their forts initially. Uh, the Hudson's Bay Company traders, they had access to their um, to their forts, to their trading sites, and Indigenous peoples generally benefited or at least tolerated the traders because of the, the benefits of the trade goods. Um, but it's interesting that um, the Hudson Bay Company also benefited from the treaty process prior to um, the Confederation of Canada um, the Hudson's Bay Company was paid by London and Canada for their title to the Hudson's Bay Company forts. They were given 300,000 pounds for that. And they also benefit, the Bay also benefited from treaty because um, not all of them, but some of the negotiations took place at the Hudson's Bay Company forts or near them. And so the traders benefited because of the treaty payments, because of the annuity payments that became part of treaty. So the Hudson's Bay Company plays a huge role in kind of um, in, in kind of the early uh, contact period, um, getting getting to each other through trade, getting to know each other through all these different um, interactions, and then also uh, they play a huge role uh, in the actual negotiations of the number of treaties. And and didn't they have a, a sort of a a very good link or or connection to to the British Crown or or an, an Earl or something of that nature? I think it was the Selkirk Treaty that brings yeah, comes the Selkirk on. Treaty is really interesting. It's it's one of the important precedents for the number treaties. It's 1817. Uh, the Earl of Selkirk mm. um, tried to create a settlement. There's quite a bit of difficulty because during this period you have both the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company, right. and there's friction between the two. Yes. And so during, we won't get into the details, but during one of the confrontations, um, Selkirk eventually has to come in and try to make peace, and part of that was this negotiation of the Selkirk Treaty. Um, the Selkirk Treaty is an important treaty. It eventually becomes null and void when Treaty 1 is negotiated in 1871. But um, Chief Pegwis, who was one of the key negotiators with uh, Selkirk and Coltman and people that were kind of involved for Canada with that treaty. Um, his son, uh, Henry Prince, is actually one of the chief negotiators for Treaty 1 in 1871. So you have this continuity between the Selkirk Treaty of 1817 and Treaty 1 of 1871 that is quite interesting. And the Selkirk Treaty itself is quite interesting because um, when you look at it closely, it, it has really interesting perspectives on land. Uh, Amy Kraft is a historian. Uh, she wrote a book called Breathing Life into the Stone Fort Treaty. Mm. And she talks about how um, how the conceptions of land were very different in the Selkirk Treaty. Um, rather than reserves being made for Indigenous peoples, the reserves were for the settlers. So in the Selkirk Treaty, there's a reserve along the river for settlers, and all the land outside of that reserve uh, belongs to the, the the Soto and the Cree. So Henry Prince, in 1871, he asks the um, treaty commissioner, who was Adams G. Archibald, he says, I don't understand this notion of reserve. Why are reserves to be for the indigenous peoples when we had a treaty, we had the Selkirk Treaty, and the mm -hmm. reserves were for the non-native. Right. So these are these are key kind of um, parts of the negotiations that flip lights on for me mm. in terms of our conceptions of land. Sure. And so the the Selkirk Treaty is important because of that, and and of course the role that the the, the traders played in the Selkirk Treaty is crucial as well. 
Well, and you you just said something that that I thought was really interesting, and is that the, the the reserve land was supposed to be for the settlers, which is kind of like, oh, that's an interesting twist on what we've come to know. Well, it makes sense, really. Because it does, of from course. From an indigenous perspective, um, of course, that's the way you'd want it because everything else is traditional territory. Mm-hmm. And Treaty One is the most controversial because um, we the, you have arguments back and forth. Uh, it has one of the greatest eyewitness accounts because um, this is Red River. It's a it's a it's a it's a popular little town. There's lots of people there, and there's a newspaper called the Manitoban. And there are journalists who attend it, and we have this great record from the perspectives of journalists. And what this really shows is an incredibly heated debate back and forth, mainly about land. And so Canada's response and the response of Adams G. Archibald, the treaty commissioner, was to try to obfuscate land as much as possible because mm. the, the Korean Soto were really from a position of power in their negotiations. Right. And so it, it's Archibald who then recommends to further treaty commissioners. To, he basically says um, he recommends that, that they do not discuss land until after the treaty is concluded, which it, it's bamboozling, but it, it's clear in the, in the public record. It's in, it's in Alexander Morris's Treaties with the Indians of Canada. It's uh, Adams G. Archibald's dispatch. And this become, kind of comes becomes um, a policy of its own in terms of what uh, the later Treaty Commissioner Alexander Morris does. He kind of turns this into a strategic plan where they, will, they do not discuss the surrender clause. They only discuss the benefits of treaty, which leaves Indigenous peoples thinking that, yes, we do have a, a land-sharing treaty and that anything outside of reserve land is, is actually our traditional territory. Mm-hmm. You know that that goes hand in hand with what you were you're just saying there about this this anonymous quote that I see in chapter two. Uh, they stand on their natural rights as lords of the land and flatly, firmly decline to enter into treaty with the government. The Indians must be afraid of white people, or they will very soon make the white man fear them. Yeah, that's Treaty Three. Treaty Three is also very fascinating because. Um, for a lot of the, the treaties in Western Canada, um, they were negotiated at the request of Indigenous chiefs. Mm-hmm. Um, treaty 7, for example, was, Treaty 6, for example, was, it was um, Chief Mistawasis who, who recommended it, because they had settlers in their territory and they wanted their title dealt with. But Treaty 3, which is the basis of the quote, quotation you just read, um, they didn't ask for treaty. Uh, what happened is that in 1869, uh, Canada had to deal with the real resistance at Red River. Mm. And so um, Simon James Dawson, who was a, a land surveyor at the time, he negotiated uh, what eventually became a right-of-way treaty to allow the military through Anishinaabeg territory, right. where Treaty 3 is now. Mm. And um, and that um, that uh, crossing, that road, which is, becomes known as the Dawson Road, becomes very important for both um, settlers moving from east to west and also for uh, John A. Macdonald's timetable for the railway. Mm. And so year after year, Canada sends treaty commissioners to meet with the Treaty 3 chiefs, and year after year, 1869, they do the right-of-way, but they don't have any uh, discussion of settlement. It's just a, a right-of-way to allow the military. 1870, they do not... Uh, allow treaty 1871 again the answer is no 1872 the answer is still no so you have this incredible resistance and agency from the Anishinaabeg chiefs against treaty against having any settlement in their territory mm. so it, that 
yeah, that becomes quite interesting. It's not really part of the, like when when I, even when I first started learning about treaties, there, the idea of Indigenous peoples with agency or resisting treaty wasn't really part of the story. Mm-hmm. And so to think that for four years in a row, the Anishinaabeg chiefs resisted mm-hmm. the treaty commissioners, I found, yes. that, I found that very compelling. Right. Well, that sounds like a great spot for us to take a pause, if you don't mind, uh, Sheldon. We're going to uh, take this pause and come right back with more of No Surrender, The Land Remains Indigenous. We're speaking with Sheldon Kosowski, and you are listening to Element FM on, uh, yeah, well, Moment of Truth, rather, on Element FM. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Element FM, and you are listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. And on the line with us from Calgary Treaty 7 area, we have Sheldon Krasowski. He is the author of No Surrender, The Land Remains Indigenous. The book just came out earlier this year in around February. And we have been speaking about uh, the surrender clause primarily uh, and how important that is, as well as eyewitness accounts. People that were around when these uh, when these treaties were signed and their input into how and what they saw going on. Uh, Sheldon has pointed out that um, the 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 idea of surrendering land was never talked about. He talked about how what he saw as uh, treaties from one to seven. He bundled those together and looked at them in a group and saw that that the land surrender was not something that was ever talked about in in these things. Uh, Sheldon, the other thing you mentioned, you mentioned uh, Winona Wheeler, and uh, she actually does the foreword for your book. That's correct, yes. Um, and you, she was also the person that told you, when you first started delving into this, to look at uh, what had been said from the oral side of things, from the Indigenous perspective. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. Um, Dr. Wheeler, I think her her style, like she's very, she's very motivational, she's incredibly knowledgeable, but um, in terms of... Um, the students that she supervises for dissertation work. I think she wants them to be free to find their own points of analysis, their own arguments. Mm-hmm. And so, um, as I mentioned, her advice was to look at the oral histories first. And But but I would ask her question after question. In fact, um, when, when I was working at the Treaty Commissioner's Office, I was also working with um, Dr. Harold Cardinal, the late Dr. Harold Cardinal, mm-hmm. who was doing some work with the Treaty Commissioner. And I would say, well, I'm doing this work on treaties. And like these, Dr. Wheeler and, and Dr. Cardinal were incredibly uh, knowledgeable about about treaties, but I felt that they were very hesitant to answer my questions. Mm. And so I'd ask very specific questions, and, and I would just get kind of, kind of general replies. And I'd kind of go back, and I'd think, well, that's not really helpful at all. Mm. So it was kind of basically a, a, a let-me-struggle let approach. But when I did kind of dip uh, during the actual writing, when I did kind of dip into areas that didn't make sense or or, or weren't quite um, up to academic rigor, then of course it was Dr. Wheeler whose responsibility was to uh, take her pen out and, mm. and chop that off, which he certainly did a lot of. Mm. <laughs> well, it's great that uh, they obviously endorsed uh, what you came up with because she wrote the foreword for your book. So, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I was, I was really happy that she did that. She's very busy and she's. Um, department head mm. uh, and professor of Indigenous Studies at University of Saskatchewan. She's very busy. Right. So um, I, was, I was very lucky to, to, to get her to do that. Right. Uh, now, in your, in your discovery and looking at the, the treaties and the negotiations that were going on, um, you know, something that, uh, that I remember seeing this one, I thought it was a very interesting way of looking at 
how they were establishing uh, the 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 area that would be uh, set. I think it might have been that one we were talking about where um, they said uh, uh, if you on a on a flat area. If you can see a horse, wherever the, that horse disappears, or the light that is underneath the belly of the horse, mm-hmm. that would be the distance to where that land uh, would would end, I guess. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that's the Selkirk Treaty again, and that goes. I was going to mention that actually when we were talking about the Selkirk Treaty. So that was the reserve for settlers. It was um, uh, along the banks of the Red, and uh, the territory would be uh, as far as. Uh, you could see daylight between the legs of a horse in a straight line, mm-hmm. which is an interesting, it is. interesting definition of land. You know, the other thing I'd like to ask you about is when you when you re- read these interpretations or the words written down from the non-indigenous and the indigenous perspective of these of these dealings and their understandings and how they interpret things. Um, even from the little bit that I've seen in in your book about about the these, there the indigenous people uh, and chiefs spoke very clearly and eloquently, as from what I can see from the way they were they were interpreted at least in terms of uh, very precisely and very cleverly uh, uh, and 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 clearly talking about the land and what they wanted from it. Yeah, um, the the orality of the speeches, like you could probably write a book or a dissertation just on mm-hmm. the, tr- the treaty speeches. They're quite amazing. There's two famous ones. The first one is um, the the speech by Chief Crowfoot in mm-hmm. Treaty Seven. Uh, he compares the Northwest Mounted Police to the feathers on a bird. It's quite a quite mm-hmm. a famous quote. And there's also a um, a quote. Sorry, a quote uh, in Treaty Three. It's um, Oh, it is Chief Matawadopanes. Sorry, my I anglicized the chief's no name because I'm I'm reading all this, and um, this one is it's both um, it's well known because of its uh, the orality of it, the, mm-hmm. the 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 beautiful speech, but also because of um, the way that it was written down. So you you were kind of hinting, I think, in your question that not only are these speeches um, given orally, but these are now, of course, written down and translated. So there is this issue of translation, which we can talk about in greater detail, but I'll just read this speech because it is, it is quite well known and it is quite interesting. So uh, the chief at the close of the Treaty 3 negotiations, which we discussed, so the first four years, the chiefs were adamant that they would not uh, enter into a treaty with Canada. But in 1873, there's a new treaty commissioner, it's Treaty Commissioner Alexander Morris, and the chiefs do agree to treaty, and at the close of the negotiations, uh, this is what the chief says. He says, now you, stand, now you see me stand before you all. What has been done here today has been done openly before the Great Spirit and before the nation. And I hope that I may never hear anyone say that this treaty has been done secretly. And now, in closing this council, I take off my glove, and in giving you my hand, I deliver over my birthright and lands. And in taking your hand, I hold fast all the promises you have made, and I hope they will last as long as the sun goes round and the water flows, as you have said. So this is a really interesting speech in that it talks about uh, everything being done in the open, and it also talks about kind of the main... um, the main philosophy of treaties that they will last as long as the sun shines, the grass grows, and mm. the rivers flow. Mm-hmm. 
But the controversial part of the speech is in the center, where right. what's recorded is, I take off my glove, and in giving you my hand, I deliver over my birthright and lands. Yes. And so I spent many, many years reading these uh, accounts, these eyewitness accounts, and um, that kind of that kind of um, stuff kind of sticks out for me. Anything mm-hmm. kind of kind of out of place. And sure. so um, there's another account. So Alexander Morris was the main treaty commissioner, but um, there was another treaty commissioner by the name of Simon James Dawson. I mentioned him in terms of the Dawson route. Mm-hmm. And he had a really interesting relationship with the Anishinaabeg peoples. He had worked with them for many years. Uh, he knew uh, parts of the language, and he had spent a great, ma- great many years with them working on the road. And he was at the Treaty 3 negotiations as well, of course, because he's a treaty commissioner. And But what he does that's kind of interesting is he takes his own notes of the negotiations, mm. and he doesn't share them with his fellow treaty commissioners. He just kind of keeps them for himself, and they end up in his papers, and eventually when he dies, they're donated to the Library and Archives Canada. And so I requested his um, his papers, uh, because, of course, he's a treaty commissioner. He's a really interesting figure. Mm-hmm. And, I, and when I was looking through them, I noted that um, Dawson also wrote down Chief Matawat Depinus' speech, the Anishinaabeg chief's speech, and this is how he, he wrote it down. Right. And I trust what we are about to do today is for the benefit of our nation as well as for our white brothers, that nothing but friendship may re- may reign between the nation and our white brothers. And now I take off my glove to give you my hand to sign the treaty. And now before you all, Indians and whites, let it never be said that this has been done in secret. It is done openly and in the light of day. So it's definitely the same speech, definitely the same themes about it not being in secret, but where... Uh, the, the account that's in the treaty commissioner's book says, I deliver over my birthright in land. Yeah. It's Simon James Dawson. He only says, I take off my glove to give you my hand to sign the treaty. Yeah. So it's really interesting that this, I deliver over my birthright, yeah. is actually added by the treaty commissioner. And this is the, the, what this reflects to me is this idea of the, the treaty commissioners trying to um, give the sense that a surrender takes place, even yes. though it's not actually discussed during the negotiations. Yes. So we were talking about smoking guns earlier, and that was one of the main smoking guns for me, this mm-hmm. idea that this, these words would be added. And so to me, Simon J. Dawson, Simon J. Dawson is a really important figure in treaty negotiations, especially for Treaty Number 3, because he keeps this account, he keeps it for himself, he doesn't share it. There's no reason for him to add or take anything away. Uh, it's what I call mm-hmm. a private document. It's like a letter. Yep. Uh, there's less bias in the other speech, which eventually becomes uh, part of the public record in terms of um, Alexander Morris's dispatch to the Department of Indian Affairs. So for me, that's an important... Um, that's an important um, piece of evidence in terms of uh, this idea of no surrender, that, that treaty number three is a land-sharing treaty, not a surrender treaty. Yeah. And were you, in your research, did you come across other similar or, or, or even slightly similar situations where there was that, that gray area that, that was debatable? Mostly it's an absence of, mm-hmm. like I mentioned, an absence of discussion of the surrender clause, so it ends yeah. up being very subtle. Right. Um, the other thing, so there's kind of two parts. So when, when Canada or the treaty commissioners, when they say, oh no, a surrender took place, they yeah. give two bits of evidence. They say that, um, that the, 
the surrender clause was discussed during the negotiations, which it was not. And the other thing that they say is that at the end of the negotiations, the text of treaty is read and translated. Mm. And of course, the text of treaty has a surrender clause. Mm -hmm. So looking at this idea from oral history, uh, that the land was never surrendered, I looked very, very closely at how the text of treaty was translated and read yes. at the close of the negotiations. Yep. And the, the most compelling evidence was Treaty 4. This is 1874 with the Korean Soto. And it's kind of interesting because the um, the Treaty 4 interpreter is a man named Askenutau, Charles Pratt. He was um, mm-hmm. a Methodist missionary at the time. And he is also uh, the great, 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 great-grandfather, I believe, of Dr. Winona Wheeler, who mm. was my dissertation supervisor. Mm. Mm. So this is quite interesting, But um, and this is another area where I didn't really get any advice <laughs> from Dr. Wheeler about her relatives. I was mm. kind of on my own, but I looked at what she had written about him, and I looked at other accounts of him, and one thing that I noticed was that he he was in favor of settlement, but he wasn't necessarily in favor of treaty. Mm. And again, Treaty 4, we have the benefit of eyewitness accounts from journalists, and the journalist account of the reading of Treaty 4 is really interesting because when you look at it, you you have um, the journalist's name was uh, Charles Hunt, and he describes it as, and at the close of the treaty, all of a sudden, uh, Treaty Commissioner Alexander Morris handed the bulky-looking document to Charles Pratt, the interpreter, with the assumption being that he was now going to have to interpret this. And I don't know if, you, if you've seen the original manuscript. It's 11 pages long, and each page is 11 by 17, mm. handwritten. Mm. It's incredibly difficult. Mm. And so um, the idea is that um, for other treaties, like for Treaty 3, the reading of the treaty text is done by James McKay, who is, who is a treaty commissioner and who's very much in favor of treaty. So we're not sure how he translated the surrender clause. But for Treaty 4, it would have been very difficult for Charles Pratt to translate uh, the entire treaty or the surrender clause or anything. And um, the journalist, um, Charles Hunt, even even notes that the, the shock on Charles Pratt's face, it was clear that he had never seen the document before. Mm-hmm. So again, there's this strategy by the Canadian government and the treaty commissioners to, again, focus on the benefits of treaty um, and not mention the surrender clause. Yeah. And uh, that's that's the, the tree, for example. So there, there are a few other, other examples. And basically in the book, I try to bundle them together to make a, a compelling argument that the land has never surrendered, that mm. it's a land-sharing treaty. Right. And um, yeah, that's, that's one of them. Did you come across anything that would, that would indicate a, 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 a confusion or, or a translation around the word surrender itself? Well, yeah, that's interesting because that's part of the um, this kind of main thesis that um, more traditional historians have said was that, oh, there's just these common misunderstandings and, you know, no one's at fault. <laughs> it, they just didn't come to a common understanding and, and you know, the, the treaties aren't that important because of that. And so there are quite a few historians that have that have used this argument. But... And, I, and again, I'm the first one to, to, to counter this argument. I think the first one was um, the Treaty 7 um, Elders and Tribal Council. There's a book called The True Spirit Intent of Treaty 7. Mm-hmm. And they basically, the elders asked, well, well, how can we be accused of not understanding the surrender clause when it was not mentioned to us mm-hmm. during the negotiations? Right. And so to say, well, there's confusion over how you interpret this surrender clause, I think that 
resonates with a lot of people because it makes a lot of sense. Yep. But it takes away from this idea that Canada purposefully misled yes. the chiefs by yep. by not bringing up the surrender clause. Yeah. So in terms of, like, I'm not saying interpretation is perfect. I'm not saying that um, uh, the treaty commissioners or the Indigenous leadership understood all aspects of it. But for the most part, because as you mentioned, the basis of the this long-standing trade relationship with Hudson's Bay, missionaries that had been in their territory... All of the treaty commissioners, um, the main treaty commissioner for Treaty 6, or the uh, main commissioner who deals with lands is is William Joseph Christie. He's a former HBC Hudson's Bay Company factor from Edmonton. So you have all these uh, knowledgeable people that act as treaty commissioners. So they certainly, uh, they did understand Indigenous perspectives and Indigenous perspectives through this, and Indigenous peoples and chiefs through this long trade relationship also had a pretty good understanding of the um, of the Euro-Canadians or the Canadian government. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, uh, you mentioned the Hudson Bay Company again, and uh, I know the Hudson Bay Company, and I'm not sure who they were they were they were dealing with at the time. Um, and it goes back to this this the, the, I'm not sure if you mentioned this earlier, but I was thinking of plow depth uh, of negoti- mm-hmm. of the negotiations, and and they were talking about the black hole that was in the ground and and said, well, this is, you know, it's not doing you any good and we'd like to make use of it. Um, and, you know, and and how did that, you know, how would have that been negotiated if if discussions were around plow depth, you know? Yeah, so we've been focusing mainly on the surrender clause, but of course there are other aspects of the of the number treaties, and not just the number treaties, but the, the treaties that preceded them. And one of the the groups of treaties that preceded the number treaties are the um, the Douglas treaties, the Vancouver mm-hmm. Island treaties from 1850 to 1854. And the again, I'm kind of interested in in like what brought these negotiations on, why why did these occur? And on Vancouver Island, coal was a big part of it. Mm-hmm. So it were these resources that the that the British really desired, and it was also part of the terms of um, British Columbia's entry into Canada was to ne- negotiate these treaties, and it was James Douglas who negotiated them. So the Douglas treaties are very interesting. Uh, treaty 3 also has a clause on um, mineral rights. Uh, one of the chiefs asked, so he basically says, we have a rich, we have a rich country. Uh, the, the sound of gold and silver is rustling under my feet. What will happen in terms of treaty with our resources? And the treaty commissioners, they kind of huddle a little bit. They were kind of expecting this because the Treaty 3 chiefs uh, have always known that they're, that it's a, it's a wealthy country. There's copper, there's gold, there's silver. There's already mining further east. And so their, their, their answer is very strategic. They basically say, well, if you discover minerals on reserve, they're, they're yours to sell. Outside of, outside of reserve, uh, they, become, they become fair game is basically what they say. Mm. So... The question of mineral resources in in treaties is very controversial, and of course it's also because it's it's tied to land. Yeah, yeah, right. And then it gets even more complicated later, not necessarily because of treaty, but because of colonialism and the Indian Act, mm. and how the Department of Indian Affairs um, has an impact on uh, reserve lands and reserve governance mm. from the post post treaty period up up until today, really. Mm. Well, that's a good spot for us to take another break. 
But please do not go away. Uh, Remain on the line. And please, listeners, don't go away. We're going to come back with some more interesting conversation with Sheldon Krasowski and his book, No Surrender, The Land Remains Indigenous, right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. We're back on Moment of Truth and Element FM. Our guest on the line from Calgary is Sheldon Krasowski. He is the author of No Surrender, The Land Remains Indigenous. It's a new book, and it's out, I believe, in most bookstores. Sheldon, is that correct? Uh, yeah, chapters, and uh, uh, local, I think they try to get it in most of the local bookstores as well, so you can try there first. So if you're interested, you can go and find this. It is a very interesting book. And uh, Sheldon, uh, were you able to hear that commercial just before... Uh, before we came back with the chief on there? About, oh, no, I missed that, sorry. So, well, he was just saying um, about how it isn't the, it isn't the indigenous people who, whose job it is to, to save the planet. It's uh, just to talk about our connection to the planet and to remind people about that. Mm, and, and, uh, and that the earth doesn't need us, we need the earth. Uh, it's a very interesting comment. I just wanted to tie that in with these things because it ties back to land and and what I want to talk about with with that idea of land and it it all goes back to these negotiations and the treaty negotiations and 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 I guess I'm I'm wondering and it's, I'm not the first person to say this but it, you know it 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 makes sense to me that why would anyone sign over their house or their property. Yeah, you know, exactly. and and give up the the home so that they would be homeless. It, it just it doesn't make sense. No, and that's what uh, Amy Kraft asked asked in her book as, as well, "Breathing Life Into the Stone Fort Treaty." Mm. She she asked, "Why would people give up so much mm. to a handful of of, of Euro Canadians?" Right. It, it just and, yeah. And, yeah, and that and especially that when Indigenous really people are so tied to the land. Absolutely, <laughs> and your the quotation uh, about. Um, Land, I thought of Chief Beardy at Treaty 6. Mm. Um, but one of the promises that he made during the Treaty 6 negotiations is that he would teach non-Indigenous peoples how to be stewards of the land. Mm. So um, Sharon Van and others have talked about um, non-Indigenous treaty rights, mm. and that's a big part of it. It's, it's this, um, this responsibility for the land, and it was Chief Beardy and the other chiefs that would, like, like you say, they would uh, show... Because it's, it's a land-sharing treaty, uh, non-Indigenous peoples are going to be parts of the land, but Indigenous peoples would show them how, how to look after it, because, of course, they had been stewards of the land for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the other thing that I wouldn't mind uh, addressing with you is you mentioned the, the spirit and intent, and that is something that has come back again and again with these uh, these treaties is that this, the, what is the spirit and intent? You can't just look at the, the written words. It is what is the spirit and the intent behind what was written down there. Yeah, exactly. So for a lot of people, the treaty is the text of treaty. A lot of people in Canada, yeah, yeah. Uh, not in, not in, I don't, I've never come across or spoken to an Indigenous person that, that, would, that would have any interest in the, in the text of treaty. It's mostly the, the oral history, the oral accounts. But for most non-Indigenous uh, Canadians, the treaty is, is the text of treaty. But that doesn't reflect the spirit and, and intent. So for me, the treaty is the, um, the, the complete uh, negotiations mm. and the oral history of, mm. of the treaties. And I think for the Indigenous chiefs, they're taking notes. Uh, they, they shake hands at the end. Everything is kind of pointing to this, uh, this oral tradition, though mm. um, many, many chiefs had... Um, 
had had their own clerks and their own uh, young men and women who who took notes of the treaties. So we've got the Paypom document, which is another account of Treaty Three, which is quite interesting, which has an account uh, that was written down uh, by the chiefs, and uh, it also does not include a, a surrender clause. It just has the benefits of treaty. So we have all the, all this evidence. But yeah, as far as spirit and intent goes, um, it's not the text of treaty. Uh, it's the oral negotiations, the oral history, and I and I, of course, focus on on the eyewitness accounts. Yeah, yeah, um, and 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 that is a big part of of your book. And people can certainly find out more. We're not going to be able to get anywhere close to. Uh, other than scratching the surface on your book uh, here today, because we're getting close to the end of our time. But it sure has been very interesting having you on the program today, and I greatly appreciate that you took the time to join us. Um, So um, just to go through a little bit of the chapter headlines here that you have uh, quotes with almost all of them, I'm just wondering if you can, you know, sort of shed some light on some of these things. Um, The loyalty which costs nothing is worth nothing. What? Well, that's an interesting quote, because we mentioned the Selkirk Treaty, we mentioned Chief Peglis uh, in 1817, mm-hmm. his son Henry Prince. Uh, when the Cree and Soto were loyal during the Riel resistance, they wanted, um, they wanted to, that to be recognized by the Canadian government, mm-hmm. and that became part of the Treaty, treaty 1 negotiations in 1871. So it kind of, um, it, it, becomes a great primary source. We have in the Adams G. Archibald paper, who was the first lieutenant governor of Manitoba, we have an account of a meeting between Henry Prince and Adams Archibald before the treaty negotiations began. And basically, there, there's these wonderful speeches that are that are copied uh, for to help Archibald understand the issues with treaty. But one of the um, things that Henry Prince says is he says, we were loyal and we want recognition of that in treaty. And it's Adams Archibald that says, well, yes, uh, loyalty, which, which costs nothing, is worth nothing. So mm. we will we will reward you through the, through the treaty negotiations. Mm. And that is the first successful one right. uh, in, in, in 1871. Right, and you you mentioned the other the other one about I take off my glove and give you my hand uh, to sign the treaty. Uh, the other one uh, in chapter three, the treaties should be Canada's Magna Carta. Yeah, it's interesting. I talked about how um, a lot of the ideas that I have in the book uh, I do not originate, but I kind mm-hmm. of just take take them from different people, and I'm the first one to bundle them together in all the different treaties. And Michael Ash was one of the he's an anthropologist based out of UBC, and one of uh, his ideas uh, in his book, uh, which is called On Being Here to Stay, he talks about, uh, he's one of the first authors to say, you know what, there there was no misunderstanding. Indigenous peoples and the Canadian government, they did understand each other, and he focuses on trees four and six. And as part of his research, he, he realizes that, hey, um, the, the number treaties are non-Indigenous peoples' Magna Carta. So if Indigenous peoples trace their sovereignty to the Royal Proclamation of 1763 or their own oral tradition and their own territory, then for non-Indigenous peoples, it would be the treaties. If you want to talk about your rights to share the land mm. from non-Indigenous peoples, uh, that's our Magna Carta for mm. non-Indigenous peoples. That's mm. where we have access to the land. And we, because of the way the treaties negotiate have been negotiated, it hasn't been done respectfully. Right. And so I'm hoping that when people, either through reconciliation, just by thinking about these issues, 
or by reading books like No Surrender and other books that um, people can, can start to re- rethink their relationship with the land and with Indigenous peoples in Canada. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, and um, I want to hold the treaty we made with the Queen. Yeah, that's uh, Treaty 6. That's Mistawasis and Atakakoop. So that's uh, where I was born in, in Saskatoon and, and Carleton and, and Fort Pitt, all the way to Edmonton. And Chief Mistawasis was an interesting chief because he was very much a bridge builder with, um, with, uh, with settlers. And during and he was very much supportive of uh, completing Treaty 6 negotiations. He was also angry that not all the promises... Uh, were delivered mm. uh, in the years after uh, the treaty was negotiated. But during 1885, when the army came in and when there was resistance to the Canadian government, um, he held, he wanted to hold the treaty. He did not want to break the treaty, so he did not participate mm. in, in 1885. Mm. And both him, uh, both Mr. Wallace and Atakakoop, they, they went north to avoid the troubles. Right. So that's, that's what that's in reference to. And it really kind of shows the power of treaties Another, uh, we talk about other treaty rights besides uh, land. Another one is um, Indigenous peoples would not have to participate in, in any international wars. And, and Indigenous peoples know this, but despite that fact, we had the highest yeah. uh, proportion of um, Indigenous peoples in World War I and World War II, even mm-hmm. though they knew through, through treaty Right. That, that they that they didn't have to, but they did anyway, which I think is also amazing. Yeah, and then there was a whole lot of other stuff that came out of that uh, when they came back after the war. Uh, yeah. <laughs> about more yeah, mistreatment, you know, losing their rights yeah, if they wanted the to. Colonialism, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, Chapter 5, Treaty 7, the Blackfoot Crossing Treaty. Uh, this I like this one. The Great Spirit and not the Great Mother gave us this land. Yeah, so Treaty 7 is, is fascinating because the Nistastapi, the Blackfoot, the Sutsina, and the Stony, they're very much not <laughs> they're not interested in sharing their land with anyone mm. at all. But because the Northwest Mounted Police come in and they do chase out the, the whiskey traders, they mm. do benefit their communities, uh, they're kind of, they end up in, um, in a bit of a... a a perilous situation because um, in order to respect the Northwest Mounted Police, they have to allow Métis and other nations mm. into their territory. Mm. And so uh, in order to kind of define the rights uh, through Treaty 7, the uh, Chief Crowfoot and Red Crow, they agreed to the Treaty 7 negotiations. And that that negotiation is quite interesting uh, after 1877. Uh, there's another... Um, quote by Chief Atakakoop, I think at the beginning of, of Treaty 7, uh, T- Chief Atakakoop is Cree and um, Red Crow and Crowfoot, or of course, of course Blackfoot, and um, Atakakoop said, if only we're, we were a nation together, we would have had a much stronger um, resistance to the treaty negotiations, and uh, instead what you had is you had uh, Treaty 7 and Treaty 6, Blackfoot and Cree negotiated separately, and Atakakoop always felt that, that if they had been one nation together, they, were, they would have been in a much stronger position. Mm. Uh, can you can you share anything more on that quote? The the great spirit and not the great mother gave us this land. With the... yeah, so um, when so the treaty commissioner um, uh, tre- Alexander Morris was a treaty commissioner for treaties three till six, but treaty six is interesting because it has the medicine chest clause. I don't mm. know if you've heard of the medicine chest clause. But the chiefs demanded protection from famine because there had been smallpox, and they also mm. knew that the buffalo were diminishing because mm-hmm. of overhunting. 
especially uh, south of the U.S. border. And so um, the um, it gets kind of complicated. So the Treaty Seven Chiefs, they um, they basically tried to uh, emphasize um, their own sovereignty in the negotiations. And the um, there's a new treaty commissioner for Treaty Seven, which is David Laird. Um, because of the Medicine Chest Clause in Treaty Six, Alexander Morris was actually relieved of his position. Mm of Treaty Commissioner because he did not have authorization by the Canadian government to add the Medicine Chest Clause I to see. Treaty 6. Mm-hmm. And so we have a new Treaty Commissioner, and David Laird wasn't as politically astute as Alexander Morris, and he started the negotiations with the the Queen has given us this land. And, of course, right away, the Treaty 7 chiefs <laughs> took took offense at that, and then, yeah. of course, it's the great spirit, not the great mother. And that's how Canada referred to the queen as the great right. mother, Yes, because initially she was quite young, and she was ridiculed, but then they described her as a mother in order to um, try to get her more favor in, in mm-hmm. Indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. And Sharon Van has wrote, written about this quite a bit, but it's also interesting that all of the, the treaties that we've been discussing, they all start with Her Majesty the Queen of Ireland and Great Britain, mm-hmm. even though the Queen doesn't play a direct role um, in in the treaties. It's really treaties between Canada and the First Nations chiefs. But because of this role that the Queen plays in the negotiations and in the discussions, many people describe the treaties as international treaties. And and I believe that they are. And in fact, uh, many Indigenous... uh, people uh, say the, the, the treaties are not with Canada, they are within, with the Crown. That's exactly yeah. the case. Yeah. Sometimes I think that can be, um, like, the. I feel that the whole treaty story and treaty history is, is already incredibly compl- complicated. Mm-hmm. When, mm-hmm. You, when you add that element, right. sometimes I think it becomes too difficult, so I don't focus on that. Right. But, you know, the, the treaty's clear, and the eyewitness negotiations, they always talk about um, the, the role of the Queen in the treaty negotiations. So, right. absolutely. Right. Uh, two more quotes I want to get to. Uh, this one, uh, as long as the sun shines, we heard that earlier, an everlasting grasp of her, the Queen's hand. Yeah, so um, this is that main, the main theme that as long as the grass grows, the sun shines and the rivers flow. Right. And this kind of this kind of takes us full full circle back to my main argument. So if there was no surrender of lands, does that make the treaty null and void? Mm. And of course it does not. The treaties last as long as the sun shines, the grass grows, and the mm. rivers flow. What, what it changes is how we view the relationship to the right. land. Right. And so there are other aspects of treaty that aren't taken away because of this um, subterfuge on, on behalf of Canada, we have the, the education clause, which actually, it, it is a violation because of what happened with residential schools. Mm. But we have the peace and good order clause. We even have, um, we have annuity payments, which even though today they are still only $5 per right. person, $25 for headmen and $50 for chiefs, they never did rise with inflation. Mm. But they're still important because those... Um, annuity payments exist today. I just got the the schedule for Saskatchewan mm. when Canada will go out and make the the right. annuity payments, right. and so that kind of symbols this sig- signifies this annual renewal yes. of treaty. Right. And it wasn't just supposed to be handing off a five dollar bill. It was supposed to be that every year during this process, uh, the treaty the treaties would be discussed again right. and opened up and discussed. Right. And the best example of that is the Treaty Four 
uh, every year in September, there's a great uh, Treaty 4 gathering at Capel. Mm-hmm. And that, this is the, the anniversary of, of Treaty every year, right. and it's, it's always a big event and a big celebration. So, Sheldon, one last one. I want to go back to the very beginning, the introduction, and uh, one it's the numbered treaties in historical context. Our dream is that one day our people will be clearly recognized as nations. Yeah, and this is from Elder Oaks. So I was with um, Harold Cardinal. I was helping him with the design of a book that's called Our Dream, mm-hmm. which is the collection of um, elders' teachings about um, about treaties. Uh, and it's uh, the authors are the elders, Harold Cardinal and Walt, Walter Hildebrand. And I remember when um, I, I assisted with this, but these... Quick, quickly, um, please. We're running, we're running out of time. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. They totally took place in, in Cree, but I remember Harold said, oh, I, I got that quote from, from the old man from Gordon Oaks. Our dream is that we will one day be recognized as nations, and I remember how important that was to Harold, and that, of course... Oh, I think we lost him. That was Sheldon Krasowski. He is the author of No Surrender, The Land Remains Indigenous. He's our guest today. Thanks for joining us. Tomorrow on Moment of Truth, we will have a guest, Wanda Nanabush. She's the curator at the AGO and the Indigenous Art Collection. I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, Aidan Wolf, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Janet Lamb, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech and thanks for listening. This show was brought to you in part by APTN.